Hey guys, welcome back. So I'm sorry this is a little bit late, but I was actually camping. Um, Tia knows how good I am at camping, but I was camping for a little while, just like a couple of days. So um, I take a little, took a little bit of a break and now I'm back to talk to you about garlic and onion toxicity. So let's dive into like, first of all, what is like a garlic and an onion? And is it just garlic and onions that are a problem? What kind of family are they in? You know, we'll talk about some of the things that cause the toxicity, who's affected by it, our treatments, um, and their prognosis. So first off, so onions and garlic are part of the allium species, as well as chives and leeks. So the interesting thing about these toxicities is for all of these, it doesn't matter if it's raw or cooked or dehydrated flakes or the granulated forms or the dry onion soup mixes, all of them can potentially be toxic to our pets. Now what like specific part is toxic, right? So the specific part of it is, so they, they think that this is something called a sulfur containing oxidant. I'm going to break that down here in just a minute. Okay. But basically when the dog or cat chomps on an onion or a garlic, or we cook it, so we, we chop it up, or you know, we're actually cooking it and breaking it down, all of those things do something called mechanical disruption, meaning we have done something to the plant. It's not a natural thing. We have done something to the plant to disrupt the plant. So disrupting the garlic or disrupting the, the onion. When we do that, it releases a chemical, and it's a sulfur-type chemical, which then goes into the dog or cat's GI system. We have all sorts of bacteria in our GI system that breaks down all of this material. So it breaks down those onions and those garlic, but it also breaks down that sulfur component that's in the onion and, tar and the um, garlic. What happens at that point is something called an oxidative damage. All right, so like I said, I'm going to break this down real quick. So oxidants or oxidative means that there's a substance that accepts or receives an electron from another substance. So it's like if I'm standing somewhere in treatment and I have a technician who's standing in treatment and they have five puppies and I have one puppy, I can be an oxidant and I am going to walk over and take one of those puppies. So now I have two puppies and the technician has four puppies. I had to think about how many puppies there were at first. All right, so technician has four puppies. So I was the oxidant. I went over and I stole something or took something from another compound, another technician. Now in this situation with our onions and our garlic, we have iron, which is usually in the form of, of Fe2+, plus. just means it's iron with two electrons that are spinning around it. That is something that's inside something called hemoglobin. So hemoglobin holds oxygen. It's in the red blood cells. And it's just like, like I've done this analogy before, but basically like if you think about a car with car seats in it, the car seats are what's going to hold something, right? It holds kids usually for us in our red blood cells. The car would be the red blood cell the car seat would be hemoglobin because it wants to hold something. So it usually wants to hold our um, oxygen molecules. Now let's say that that car seat 
is normally in a state of it being a 2 plus. So that iron helps keep the oxygen in there. So now we have a car seat with iron. We're going to say that our iron is a cup holder. So two plus cup holders. We can put two little cups in there to keep our child or our oxygen wanting to be bound inside of his car seat. If you gave a kid two sodas, it's going to want to stay there, right? All right. So now when we are oxidizing something, now we're going to say that we're going to add something or take away from something, from some sort of compound. So in this case, in our onions and our garlic, we are going to make that instead of a, an iron with a 2 plus, we're going to make it an iron with a 3 plus. So now if I had my normal iron 2 plus, two cup holders on each side, very balanced, easy to keep our oxygen inside or keep our kit inside. But now if I oxidized it and I tried to make it three cup holders, it is very unstable. Like where are you going to put that third cup holder? Are you going to put it on the right? Are you going to put it on the left? And now we have more sugar that's in there. Like now we are no longer stable. This is not a stable car seat. The child is not going to want to stay in this car seat. Or basically the, the oxygen is not going to want to stay inside of that hemoglobin. So we have all chaos that breaks loose. Okay. We'll talk about like what all of this does here in just a second so that I can like kind of reiterate that, that thought again. But now let's go to back to kind of some more uh, normal basic things. So let's talk about like who's affected by this. So both cats and dogs are affected by this. Cats are a lot more sensitive than dogs. Um, their hemoglobin or basically their car seat that's holding the oxygen is two to three times more susceptible to this damage than dogs are. So our onions and our garlic is, is way worse for cats than it is for dogs. There's also like other animals that are affected by it as well. Like there are livestock. So cattles and pigs are really susceptible versus like goats and sheep. And then the other really crazy thing is that like livestock can actually develop a tolerance for this. So if you just slowly feed it to them, eventually they get to the point where it doesn't matter if you feed them like, you know, garlic and onions, which is kind of good for our pigs since we tend to give pigs everything. But anyways, that was just a side note. And we don't see a lot of cattle and pigs and goats and sheep, luckily. So how much of garlic and onions cause this toxicity is usually going to be the next question. Um, you know, it's interesting because they've found that there are lots of things that have small amounts and they're okay. So there are some dog treats that have small amounts, like dog manufacturer, not dog treat manufacturers make treats that have garlic in them. And it's okay, like they don't have an issue. It has been used many times as a home remedy for flea prevention. Now that that is an interesting topic because um, you know it's when you go onto like the ASPCA website, it says it has been debunked. And then if you try to look up papers for that, there's really not a lot out there as far as papers that have been done for animals specifically. So they have done research in people and have found that even if you like rub garlic all over yourself, it actually wasn't a very good remedy for flea prevention, but it was a good remedy for keeping mosquitoes off of you. But like, do you want to smell like garlic when you're at the beach and stuff or at the lake? I, I probably wouldn't. But 
I mean, I guess mosquito killer stuff isn't that good either. But anyways, so they they have found like some research showing that there can be good things that garlic can do, um, but there's never been like one that said for animals, garlic is not a good remedy for fleas. Again, that was like a human study and we extrapolate that from humans to people to say that it is not a good flea preventative. And so in that sense, the ASPCA has said it has been debunked, that that it is not a good flea treatment. Large amounts, though, can be very toxic to animals. So the ASPCA says any exposure to cats is unsafe, like small amounts even of any of those things, garlic powder, the onion soup, any of those can be very toxic to the cats. They have had a cat that was exposed to less than a teaspoon of cooked onions that ended up having this toxicity from this. For dogs, they have a little bit of a wider range. So it's five grams per kilogram of onions has been the safest, or sorry, the lowest amount that they have seen as a toxin in dogs, from according to the ASPCA. There are other references online that say like 15 to 30 grams per keg is fine, but the smallest amount that they've actually had a toxin for has been five grams per keg. And then there's also some other really interesting things. So like Japanese breeds are really prone to having like onion and garlic toxicities because they have this heritable problem that they can't like make antioxidants really well. And so when we think about antioxidants, they're like, on a lot of commercials, they talk about the all the good things that they do for you. But essentially, like they're trying to help your body get rid of these things called free radical scavengers or free radicals. They are the scavengers of the free radicals. But it's basically like all these bad things that your body is producing. So all of these um, irons that aren't the right iron that it's supposed to be, like it's trying to help with those things as an antioxidant. But these Japanese breeds don't have that in them. They don't have those antioxidant properties in them. So they're more likely to have a problem because of that. There's also certain animals who take certain medications that have a problem. So if they're taking any other sulfur product, so there's like the TMS, that's a sulfur product. They could have issues with garlic and onions at a lower dose than other dogs. Propofol. So if we don't know that the dog is already on some sort of garlic supplement or something, and we give it propofol, then we might make those those things worse. Um, giving large doses of vitamin K, that can also make it worse as well. And acetaminophen or Tylenol. If we don't know that the dog is on Tylenol, then that can also make this um, toxicity worse as well. They've also found that chronic exposures can be a problem too. So like maybe you give two grams per keg of onions to the dogs every day. Well, eventually that builds up in their system and then can cause a problem as well. That one's a little bit harder to determine like an amount though, because of the fact that like we don't know how long has it been? Has that dog built up a tolerance to it? Is there anything else that was taken that could be a problem? It's like that one's a much harder one to like give you an exact dose of that. And then the last thing just to kind of know about this toxicity, like how much it 
takes to cause this toxicity is that I just talked about a lot about onions, right? That the cats are really susceptible no matter how much onions, dogs fire five grams per kig. Well, garlic is three to five times more toxic than onions. So smaller amounts can cause a bigger toxicity. Now let's talk about like what this toxicity does. So we're going to go back to our analogy about our car. That's our red blood cell. Our uh, car seat is going to be our hemoglobin, which holds oxygen, right? So what happens is, is that this toxin, this sulfotoxin, creates just mass destruction of red blood cells. It does something called Heinz body formation or causes a Heinz body anemia is the other thing you might hear. And it begins at about 24 hours after ingestion. So dog ate it you know, yesterday and then today we start having this breakdown of a problem. It peaks at about 72 hours after ingestion, but even then we're actually still not typically seeing clinical signs unless they've got quite a lot of it. So now what happens is we have that hemoglobin. So we have our car seat that's supposed to hold our oxygen. Our red blood cell drives it all around to be able to take it to different parts of the body to drop off our oxygen and pick up other, other waste products, which we'll talk about some other time. But if that car seat doesn't work, we can't take, like it doesn't matter if you have an oxygen in there, if it doesn't hold the oxygen, we can't take it to from our lungs to let's say our little toe right? So when we have this onion or garlic toxicity, the hemoglobin, which is the car seat, forms something called a self-hemoglobin. So it's a sulfa hemoglobin. That sulfa binds to the hemoglobin and that doesn't work very well. That sulfa product is, that sulfa hemoglobin, is not very soluble. So it doesn't really like sit in the red blood so well. We can't strap it into our car, our little car seat. We can't strap it into the car very well. It's just, it's just not the right shape. And so instead it kind of gets pushed to the cell membrane of the red blood cell, or basically like our car seat is kind of put outside of the car, but it's definitely not safe, right? And now that it's more fragile, it's easier to break down. So if our car seat is outside of the car, it is more likely to be broken when we're, we have people passing us on the road, right? So it's, it's not really doing a good job. It, it can't hold oxygen. We can't put a kid in that car seat that is not safe. And so that red blood cell becomes a lot more fragile and very breakable. Another way to kind of think about that is like if you had an, a block of ice and I told you you know, to break down it, break it down in like one piece with just your hand, like this giant chunk of ice. It's probably not going to happen, right? Like that is how how solid these hemoglobin usually are inside their red blood cells. They're not easily broken. They can hold oxygen really well. But now if I change the shape of that, now if I change the shape of that red blood cell or I change the shape of that ice and I make that ice paper thin and I told you to break it, it's much more easily broken, right? That's what's happening to these red blood cells is we're changing their shape and making them more easily breakable. 
And that's exactly what happens. And it leads to something called anemia. Anemia is, means that we have lack of red blood cells. So there's just not enough red blood cells. And red blood cells are extremely important for so many things in life, but mostly so that we have enough oxygen to take from our lungs to other parts of our body, like our brain and our heart. Those are very, very important things. And if we can't take that oxygen there, if we have nothing to hold the oxygen, then really like we can't get oxygen to the rest of our body. Even if you inhale and you're inhaling oxygen, right? You still cannot have enough, you don't have anything to hold it there. So if you have a car and no car seat, no other seats available, there's no way you can take oxygen from one place to another. So we can't take it to our organs that are most vital that need that. All right, so I said it leads to our anemia. It also leads to something called methemoglobinemia. All these giant words I'm throwing out today, right? I'm sorry about this, but this is really like kind of the only way to understand it. But methemoglobinemia, it forms when you have hemoglobin that cannot carry oxygen. So it makes it change to this like brown, your, it makes your, your blood and your plasma change to like this brown color. You have hemolysis that occurs typically three to five days after that. That means that we start breaking down those bad red blood cells. I'm breaking down that ice that's thinly papered ice, right? I, we're breaking all of that down because it's very easily broken at this point. Or our car seat that's outside of the car, it is smashing into things left and right because we are not accounting for that. So it's being broken down. And so all of our red blood cells, if we smash our car, our car seat into something, the car is being smashed as well. And all of our red blood cells are just breaking down. That can also cause hemoglobinuria, which literally just means that there is hemoglobin or our car seat in the urine, which isn't usually supposed to be there. We typically don't see that, but now in this, this toxin, we do. All right. What are our, what are our clinical signs? So if somebody calls in and they're like, Hey, I'm not really sure if my dog got into garlic or onion or whatever. I mean, the first thing you could do is just smell their breath right? If they got into it, you should be able to smell if they have any like garlic or onion smell on them. Otherwise, you're not going to know if they've like gotten into it for days, even weeks sometimes, which is the hardest part about this. So later on, some of the symptoms are going to be that after they already have a really bad anemia, when they already have a lot of red blood cells that have been destroyed, we're going to see some of these other problems, and that's not good. So what we're going to see is we're going to see pale mucous membranes because they don't have red blood cells, don't have very many red blood cells, and red blood cells are part of what gives you your, your mucous membrane color. They're tachypnic, which means that they're breathing really heavily because they're trying to get in more oxygen. Even though they're breathing in more oxygen, their body cannot accept more oxygen. We can't hold the oxygen and take it to other places. They're tachycardic, meaning that their heart rate is really fast. That's not good either because they're trying to pump more blood out of their heart faster to get it to the lungs to get more oxygen, but our red blood cells can't pick up the oxygen. So really it's just making the heart work faster 
which is not good for the heart because the heart needs more oxygen the faster it works. So when your heart is pumping, right, you're like doing some crazy exercise, you're doing hit or something, and you know, you're running away from a lion, you're breathing really hard and really fast to get more oxygen into your lungs, to get more oxygen to your red blood cells, to get more oxygen to your heart. You're, they become really weak. Um, they, sometimes they'll have vomiting, really decreased appetite. They can become ictric, so jaundice or yellow. You'll see it in their eyes, usually first, like in the whites of their eyes. You can have it in their ears, on their belly. Like I usually tell people to look there as well. They might say that the urine looks red or bloody. And the crazy part is that when they come in, it does look bloody. We'll take a urine sample and it looks bloody. And it will fool people sometimes because they think it is bloody. You're like, well, it's, it's red. Obviously, it's blood. But it's not always blood. So it could be just hemoglobinuria, which means we have these this hemoglobin inside the urine. One way to tell is you can try to do like running the urinalysis. It may say that there's no red blood cells, even though it's very red. Not always though. I find that a lot of times it will still say there's red blood cells in there. But what you will find is when you spin it in the centrifuge, it will stay red. Red blood cells, if it is truly blood, they will fall down to the bottom of that tube and the rest of it will be a nice clear yellow because we've gotten rid of all the red blood cells, we've pushed them down because they're a lot heavier than the rest of the urine. But hemoglobinuria does not spin out. It will stay red. And that is a really important thing to remember. It's like it's going to stay red. So if you have a urine sample that's really red or bloody, it's a really good idea to take just some of it, spin it down and see, does it actually spin down and make this little red palette at the bottom? Or does it stay as that red? because that's going to give us a lot of clues to things that we may not see just on a normal urinalysis. You may see the dogs or cats having collapse. They'll just suddenly be walking and collapse. They can have hypoglycemia, so that means they have low blood sugar. That's kind of a rare thing, but it is possible. They could have methemoglobinemia. So that's just basically you need to know that what that does is it makes it so their mucous membranes turn like a purplish or a brownish color because their hemoglobin is not holding the oxygen correctly. It can't hold the oxygen, so it changes to a different color, essentially. And then also with their plasma, the, so when you spin down their blood, you might actually see that their plasma or the part that's supposed to be clear in their blood actually turns to a brown color. And then death, unfortunately, is the other big thing that they'll see. All right, let's get into how we diagnose it now. First of all, the history. Like this is going to be really big for people who are doing your your histories, right? Anybody, any of the triage technicians, if they start saying that a dog's having bloody urine, the first thing that we assume is that the dog has a UTI or the dog has stones, but we don't ask about toxins. And that is a really important one. I've already had two onion toxicity cases in the last couple weeks. And on both of them, it was just assumed that it was a urinary tract infection. 
And I think that's because a lot of people don't know about onion toxicity and garlic toxicity. But one of mine was a garlic toxicity. And that one presented as pale mucous membranes, no bloody urine. The other one presented as bloody urine, no pale mucous membranes, otherwise seemed fine. Just had bloody urine. So after doing more digging on my part about the history, I found out that both of these dogs had been exposed to garlic or onion. One of them was garlic, one of them was onion. And, you know, I may not have done more diagnostics to try to figure out what was wrong with the dog or done other things to try to help fix the dogs if I didn't know about those things. And if that's the case, the dogs would have gone home and unfortunately passed away. So it would be a good idea just to ask them, like, if there's any way they could have gotten into any other toxins as well. All right, so history is a big important part because if I don't know that the dog got into onions, I may not go looking for this. We can look at a blood smear. Blood smears are hard. So a lot of times we do send them out to a pathologist. So we send them out to a lab to be able to look at it, to tell us what they see on there, because we're just looking at a large amount of red blood cells and seeing what abnormalities we can find. In our onion and garlic toxicities, we're looking for two things. One is called a Heinz body. And the second thing is called eccentrocytes. The Heinz body, they're just like little bumps that just are being made off of the red blood cell. You can't really see them on the normal stains that we do. You actually have to use something called methylene blue. It makes it see it much easier. But it's like these little tiny bumps, like these little, like literally like it looks like a normal circle and then a bump on it. And that's just made from the hemoglobin or that sulf hemoglobin now kind of being pushed off to the side. Because again, like our our car seat is not fitting correctly inside the car. And so now we're going to push it out of the car so that way we don't have to deal with it. So that's what it does. It gets pushed outside of the cell. The other thing that we're looking for are eccentrocytes. Now, the best way I can describe this, to me, it looks like, you know, the little Pac-Man ghosts, like how they have their body and then they have like this ruffle on the bottom. Okay, now the ruffle, if you just imagine that ruffle being really clear, that's kind of what it looks like. So like the body of it is its normal red color and then it has like this clear ruffle on the bottom. But they look really strange. Like it just looks like the center of the red blood cell just kind of got pushed to the side or pushed out from that red blood cell. But we're looking for like those two things. Now those are really tiny details sometimes. I mean, red blood cells are already tiny to begin with, and now we're looking for these other tiny little things. If we find those, we have a good idea that that's potentially what it is, but there are lots of other things that make these this Heinz body anemia. You can have zinc toxicities. So let's say the dog ate a penny. It can have this, these, um, this type of anemia. There's things called a naphthalene mothball. I've never seen one. I don't exactly know what it is, but I know it's a mothball. But they apparently have stephanate as well that causes this same thing as garlic toxicity. Skunk spray when they're when they have um, when they're sprayed by a skunk. That can also cause this too. Super crazy. 
So we can't say for sure just by looking at those two things on a blood smear that that's what it is. And there are no tests available that are like, here, do you have garlic toxicity or do you have onion toxicity? There's no test that we can send out for those things. So really like the best way to know is to just know from the patient's history that they could have gotten into this onion or garlic or garlic powder or onion soup or whatever. I know what is the treatment for this? The biggest problem is there's no direct treatment for this. There's no pill that I can give them that's going to make the onion or garlic toxicity go away. Really, it is just going to be supportive care. So initially, if they call and they say, hey, I smell garlic on my dog's breath, or I saw my cat eat my pasta that had a large amount of onions in it, what do I do? If it's within the first like three to five hours, bring them in. Have us induce vomiting on them. So for a dog, we're going to give them apomorphine, or there's also the clever drops as well. For a cat, oh, cats, they're just, you know, again, like I, I know I've talked about this many times, but it's so hard to make a cat vomit. But we give them dextomator, and cats will always vomit when you don't want them to vomit, and they will not vomit when you do want them to vomit. So cats can be a little bit frustrating. And I, we've definitely tried, I try all the tricks. I spin them around, you know, you can spin them around in their kennel while they're on like a chair or something safely, obviously, and try to get them to vomit that way, pushing on their belly, um, putting a rug in front of them, right? Like anything to try to get these cats to vomit. And I'd say like I successful about 50% of the time. But we definitely try to give them something to try to help make them vomit if they do eat that stuff. For dogs, you can also talk to them about doing hydrogen peroxide. It is not the safest out of all the medications. Like ideally, we want them to come in so that we can induce vomiting. But there's going to be some people who can't do that, right? They're stuck in the middle of the woods and it's going to take them four hours to get to us. If that's the case, we might miss our window and they need to vomit. So you can't always have them call poison control. I do think that's always a good option because maybe they'll say, oh, well, that amount of garlic or that amount of onions really isn't as concerning to us. So we don't have to give, worry about giving them hydrogen peroxide. So if they'll do that, make them call. Otherwise, if they're, they don't have enough money to do that, um, also they can still call the ASPCA or Pet Poison Helpline. Sometimes they will just donate things for them or they'll help them with those things. So you can't always tell them that sometimes they can just like talk to them about like the, if they can't afford it. But if not, then the other thing that they can do is giving the hydrogen peroxide. It's about 2.2 mils per kg or essentially one mil per pound. Um, there's a maximum of 45 mils that you're going to want to give on those though. All right. So after they've done that, then we'll usually give them activated charcoal. Activated charcoal, it's not really known if it actually helps or not. They don't know if it helps prevent just the production of the sulfides or if it does help with the absorption. But um, to be on the safe side, both the ASPCA and Pet Poison Helpline have stated that they prefer to give the charcoal afterwards. I believe it's only one dose though, if I remember correctly. It's not like we have to like continuously give it to them. And I don't recommend people to do that at home. I've had a couple of people who have given activated charcoal out of like some sort of coffee bag thing. 
And one cat became extremely hypernatremic, so really high sodium from that. Like the cat was neurological for a days and then went back to being normal afterwards because this lady gave just this activated charcoal from this coffee thing. You don't know the dose of it. It's just like literally like this filter that she gave him. And it really messed up his head. So don't do not do charcoal at home. Tell them don't do charcoal at home. There's no reason to do that since we don't 100% know if that's going to help or not. But at least if they can't get there, get to our clinic, then at least if they can give hydrogen peroxide to a dog. I do not recommend that to a cat. One, the cat will try to kill you. Like if you're trying to shove hydrogen peroxide down its throat, man, they, they'll not be happy. Two, they're very likely to aspirate on it. Three, it doesn't usually make them vomit. So I don't recommend doing that for cats. And then later, like let's say we've made them vomit or maybe it's been a day and they don't know if it's going to cause any problems. We can check PCVs daily. So meaning we're literally looking to see how much or percentage of how much red blood cells are in their body. Normally it should be between like 30 to 50%. Under 30% is going to be anemia. And technically, like, that's a little bit of a gray zone. So, like, sometimes even 35% is going to be anemia. It just depends. But typically, under 30% is going to be anemia. So, not enough red blood cells. We can check blood smears daily. So, we're looking for those two things that I talked about earlier, the Heinz bodies and the echinocytes. And then once we start seeing symptoms, like my dog from the other day, what came in very pale, you know, he had, he was anemic. I couldn't tell at the time if it was a Heinz body anemia, because the problem was, is it could have been that, or it could have been IMHA, which is an autoimmune disorder, or basically the body attacking its own red blood cells. So I didn't know which one it was going to be. So when we get to those situations where they're having problems breathing and they're, they're, red blood cells are really low, that means we need to start giving them blood transfusions. They, We want to also put them into oxygen so that they can get as much oxygen to the hemoglobin or to those car seats as it possibly can hold. You know, if we have 10 car seats, we want to fill those car seats up as much as possible to get that oxygen to the rest of the body, even though we don't have very many cars to be able to hold them, right? So, Oxygen is going to be great to try to help the red blood cells that are there, but it's not going to help the fact that we don't have enough red blood cells. So we need to give more red blood cells back. So we're giving them blood back so that that way they'll be able to hold more oxygen. We're also giving them um, IV fluids. So that's for a couple of things. One, so that we can kind of like move the red blood cells around better because if we have really slow moving blood, we're not going to get to our heart very fast and we're not going to get to our brain very fast. So we want to help those red blood cells move. So we're giving them more water to help them as like a medium to swim in basically. The other thing it does is it helps protect the kidneys. So the kidneys can get a lot of damage from this because they're not used to hemoglobin going through the kidneys. Because like I said, it's not usually there and that can damage the kidneys. So we're trying to help make sure that we are help support the kidneys as much as possible so that hopefully they don't become damaged. And then dextrose if we need it. So if they have hypoglycemia 
or low blood sugar, we give them dextrose, which is basically sugar in an IV form. We give that back to them so that, that way we can keep their blood sugar up as well. All right, let's talk about the prognosis of this. So if we're able to make them vomit, then their prognosis is really good. They usually be will be just fine. But let's say we got to them later after they've already had some of these symptoms, then we put our prognosis as something called guarded to grave. So that means that they're, when it's guarded, that means we are worried there is a chance that they could die. And grave means they will die. So it just kind of depends on like how bad they are, what the symptoms are, how bad they're doing, are they improving a lot, do they hold their red blood cells, because another problem with when we give them more red blood cells is immediately their body starts trying to get rid of that. It starts breaking those down because we still have that toxin in our body. So it makes it really difficult because sometimes we end up having to give multiple blood transfusions, keeping them in oxygen for long periods of time, you know, days to a week until they start to get better and can start making more red blood cells on their own. All right, I know there was like so much information that I just gave you. So I'm just going to do like a quick recap so that maybe it's a little bit easier to understand. So we know that onions, garlics, chives, and leeks are all toxins. Garlic is worse than onions. The toxicity is worse for cats than it is for dogs. Cats can pretty much not get any garlic or onions, whereas dogs can get small amounts. It causes an anemia. So it causes them to have very few red blood cells because the red blood cells are being destroyed. When that happens, they start becoming really anemic, where they start showing signs of anemia, meaning that their, their mucous membranes or their gums are really pale. They are breathing really fast. Their heart rate goes really fast. Um, sometimes they're ictric or jaundice, so they're yellow. And sometimes we'll see things like bloody urine, which isn't really bloody urine. It's actually just really, really red urine. And we diagnose it by doing blood work. So we're able to send the blood to a pathologist to look at a blood smear to look for two particular types of things that we'll see on a red blood cell and see if this could potentially be a garlic or onion toxicity. But there are other differentials for this. Right, So there's still things like Tylenol that it could be. It could be a zinc toxicity. So we're still looking at other things to see if this could potentially be something else besides it being onions and garlic. But really the history is going to be the most important part. When they tell us that the dog ate you know, a large pan of garlic, which is exactly what my dog did from the other week, it ate, the, the owner decided not to finish her garlic chicken, which had like, I think she said 40 cloves of garlic in the chicken. She didn't finish it and let the dog finish it and became extremely ill from that. If we know that it got into it, we want to make them vomit. If we don't know that they had gotten into it and it's later, we start seeing these, uh, these really bad signs, then we're usually putting them on oxygen, giving them blood transfusions until hopefully they are able to make more red blood cells on their own. If we know immediately and we can make them vomit, they have a much better prognosis. And if we don't know and they're starting to show symptoms of like difficulty breathing, really fast heart rate, you know, anemia, 
those are bad, and we don't have a very good prognosis. All right, hopefully that clears it up a little bit. This is a really hard one, a really hard topic, but I know we've seen a couple of them now, and people have asked me a lot of questions about it, so I thought this would be a good one to talk about. And I'll try not to do such a crazy extensive one for the next next podcast. So for story time, um, for anybody who knows me, I am not very handy. I'm not a handy guy. So now I essentially have this house on wheels, which means that you have to be a handy guy to do these things. So on our very first RV trip, our toilet overflowed. I still don't know how. Like I, my daughter had used it that morning. We actually used it a week beforehand and no issues whatsoever. And during the middle of our drive, my wife tells me that the RV is flooded. So I pulled over to a McDonald's, kids and wife ate while I tried to figure out what the heck was making our RV flooded and figured out it was the toilet. And somehow there's like this weird little valve that comes out from it that just like drips water into your toilet after you flush, right? So this is not like a regular house toilet. Like I've actually like figured out how to fix those and I can like even install a new one, like take one out and install a new one. That's like the extent of my handiness. But this one is not like that. And it is not where you can see any of the other valve things. So I wasn't 100% sure. So instead of like attempting to take this thing apart, we ended up having to like call a mobile repairman, which I didn't even know existed. So FYI, there are mobile repairmen that come to your house on wheels. And so we had to try to get the thing fixed, which found out that we don't even have the parts. Like there's not a way to get this part easily. You have to order it in order to be able to reinstall this thing. And instead, I'm just sitting there like cleaning our entire RV while everybody else is eating so that I can like try to sop up this whole wet mess. Luckily, the guy was able to put like some little valve thing, like a on-off valve essentially, to try to make sure that it didn't like I could like just shut the valve and it just wouldn't overflow. But um, yeah, that's uh, that was rough. That was our very first trip, and uh, that was that was interesting. So, and there were definitely many more shenanigans. There was problems with tire pressure, and um, I set off the fire alarm every single day of our trip. So yeah, yeah, it was good, good camping fun. I did see a lot of waterfalls. I was really happy about that. All right, guys, I'm not sure if um, I'm going to be able to do one by Tuesday, but we will see. You'll probably have it next week, but later in the week, okay? If you have, guys have any questions, again, I know this was a really long one and hard one, so I'm sorry about that, um, but that's just the way it is. It's not really like a simpler way to, to talk about onion toxicity and garlic toxicity. But if you have any questions, email me, text me, you know, find me in the hallway, whatever, and I'm happy to go over it with you. All right. Thanks, guys.